Okay, good. So I think with that, I think I've got the housekeeping uh, announcements, and what I'd like to do is then uh, launch into our first talk. It's really my pleasure to have invited, to be involved in bringing back uh, Dr. Um, Daniel Doeck, who's going to talk and uh, give us an update on the um, uh, movement to a cure uh, and advances. Um, and uh, again, um, a, a very exciting topic that I think that we're all um, looking forward to seeing if it's going to happen in our professional careers, in my case, my lifetime. Thank you very much. Morning, everybody. Okay. Microphone, slides. Okay. Uh, yeah, I still have no relevant financial affiliations to disclose. They do this every time. They do it to humiliate me. It's, it's really unfortunate. Um, and yeah, I've got nothing. I'm not even being investigated by two congressional committees or, and a special <laughs> counsel, so guess that makes me innocent. Um, these, are the, these are the learning objectives that you, uh, that you have in your, in your material. Um, I'm gonna give you a um, very broad but very up-to-date review of what's going on in the cure arena at the moment, the HIV cure arena. Um, much of the data have not been uh, published yet. I'm gonna start off with a few of these questions. Uh, we'll see where we are. I may or may not tell you the answer. I may tell you the answer when we come to the, the actual teaching moment later on. So latency reversing agents, if used alone, such as varinostat, romidepsin, uh, ingenol, a whole bunch of things, have been shown to reduce the size of the HIV reservoir in uh, cure clinical studies. Is this true, false, or only in some studies? Now you can vote. You know, folks, I was talking with my honey the other day, my Pablo honey. I said to her, I said, Pablo honey, I said, I said, you go to my head. It's good music, right? Okay. Only in some studies. Yeah, in human studies, it's false. Uh, it does not reduce the size of the reservoir. Maybe in a few monkey studies, all right? But in clinical trials, the answer is false. Okay, the next one. To cure an HIV-infected person, the latent HIV reservoir needs to be reduced by at least a 1,000 times, a 100,000 times, a gazillion times. Kick it. You wake up late. This is, by the way, it's music from uh, the 1990s. It's a guy called Richard Cheese who takes punk songs and does lounge versions of them, if anyone's interested. <clears throat> um, right, this is interesting. The correct answer, according to mathematical modeler, is, is 10 to the 5 times, 100,000-fold reduction to have a cure. But I think that the correct answer is actually wrong. I think the people who wrote reducing it by 10 to the 9 times uh, are probably um, actually correct. Very good. Finally, HIV-specific monoclonal antibodies administered to HIV-infected people in clinical studies to date reduce plasma virus load delay time to rebound after stopping ART, select for resistant virus strains, or all of the above. 
In the howling wind comes a swinging rain. See you driving nails into the... Let me give you a clue. Um, I know this from doing NIH um, online management learning courses and all that kind of crap. If one of the answers is all of the above or none of the above, that's the one that's right, okay? <laughs> so monoclonal antibodies, as we have seen, have done a lot of good things, reduced plasma virus load, incre increased time to rebound, and, and uh, bad things select for resistance viruses. All right, the HIV reservoir. What's the problem when we try and um, cure someone from, from HIV? The problem is the latently infected cell, HIV-infected T-cell persistence. Now, as you all know, in an infected person, um, after acute infection, there's a lot of productive infection. You can see those, those red cells there. Um, if you put someone on effective antiretroviral therapy, uh, you clear away most of that virus, and you're left with... Uh, a very, very low frequency of quiescent infected T cells, which don't do much. They can live for a very, very long time, not produce the virus. They can even clonally expand without producing virus. So the size of the reservoir can increase. Now, if you interrupt ART, within about two to four weeks, HIV will rebound from those latently infected cells. So the charge that we have for a cure is to get rid of that quiescent infected T cell. So some definitions before we, we carry on. What do I mean by the HIV reservoir? The HIV reservoir are the cells that harbor replication-competent virus that could rekindle HIV replication and transmission in the absence of ART. I call it the reservoir that matters, the reservoir that kills you, tries to kill you when you, when you come off ART. A cure is the elimination of all of those replication-competent HIVs, and remission is a sustained period of aviremia in the absence of ART. And if that sustained period is your lifetime, then remission is your cure, and there's no difference between the two. Uh, those terms are being um, used a lot at the moment. So how do we cure HIV-infected people? Well, I'm not going to go into the details, but let's accept that there are multiple mechanisms that account for HIV persistence, uh, the, the persistence of those quiescent cells, in an HIV-infected person. And you can see there a, a long list of approaches to cure that I'm going to go into uh, in detail during, during the next few minutes. But the unifying theme is to find and diminish the size of the HIV reservoir. Now, because there are multiple mechanisms that account for persistence, what I'd like you to, to appreciate is that a combination of many different approaches is almost certainly going to be uh, necessary uh, in order to have a cure for HIV-infected people. But you might say to me, Danny, you might say, because that's my name, <laughs> you, might, you might say, we already have a cure for HIV-infected people, and indeed we do. We have one person who's been cured of HIV, and there he is, that's Timothy Brown. And what he got was a stem cell transplant from a donor whose cells were resistant to HIV infection. And he's doing well off antiretroviral drugs uh, for about 10 years now. I have his cells in my freezer. And every so often when we develop more sensitive assays to detect the virus, we go back, we take his cells out, we look for the virus, and we don't find any virus. So he's cured. But even though this procedure works, it is highly unlikely 
that it will ever translate into an accessible approach for everyone who's infected with HIV. But it's an important proof of concept, as you shall see. And this principle is underlined even more so when we think about the Boston patients. Now, they, they, these were two guys who had almost the same thing, stem cell transplantation, but they received cells from donors who were susceptible to HIV infection. And despite a 1,000 to 10,000-fold reduction in reservoir size, virus rebounded. And you can see patient B on the right. That took about nine months um, off antiretrovirals for the virus to, to, to rebound. So mathematical modeling, this was one of the questions that I asked you at the beginning, has shown that the latent reservoir will have to be depleted 100,000 times to have a cure. That, I think, is, is ridiculous. Because patient B, the one on the right, it was a single virus that accounted for recrudescence. Okay, so in my mind, you have to get rid of all of the latent um, uh, replication-competent viruses, or at least stop them from coming out of latency. What if we treat people really, really, really early on? Can we, can we make a difference there in terms, of the, in terms of the size of the reservoir and in terms of a cure? So here are some early HIV reservoir dynamics. Um, what you can see here are two groups of people who were followed from very, very early on in infection, right at the beginning. They were followed before and then into their infection. The people, um, the, the blue curves and the red curves show the size of the HIV reservoir. The blue curves, curves refer to people who were not treated with antiretroviral drugs after diagnosis, and the red curves, the reservoir in people who were treated uh, immediately. At about the time HIV RNA becomes detectable, the reservoir size begins to increase dramatically with an apparent hundredfold increase over the next two weeks. It's incredible. And the reservoir is largely established by week four of infection. You can see just over that, after that peak up there. And you can see that early ART can significantly reduce the size of the reservoir. The red curves are much lower than the blue curves. And in this group of patients, if you look at the graph on the left, um, if you treat people within two weeks, the size of the reservoir is tiny. It's almost undetectable compared to the blue circles that's treating uh, two to four weeks after infection and the green ones um, are in the chronic phase. And if you look at the curves on the, um, on the right, what you're seeing there is time to recrudescence after ART is stopped. Now, if you start people on drugs in the chronic phase of infection and then you stop treatment, virus will come back in about two weeks. If you start treatment at FEBIG stage three or four, that's really early, virus will come back in about 22 days. If you start therapy at FEBIG stage one, that's really, really early, you've just diagnosed it, and then you stop treatment, virus will come back in about four weeks. So you have dramatically reduced the size of the reservoir, but you've only delayed the time to virus rebound from two weeks to four weeks, which clinically is absolutely irrelevant. So we're up against the wall here. We can't treat any earlier. If we treat earlier, we're talking about post-exposure prophylaxis or even pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we can't treat earlier. Shock and kill. Now, you've all heard of shock and kill or kick and kill or shake and bake or whatever people like to call it <laughs> nowadays. What is it? 
You take an HIV-infected cell and you treat it with some kind of drug, a latency-reversing agent, which will reactivate HIV transcription. That's the shock. The cell will make HIV. The HIV, or the immune system, recognizing that it's producing virus, will then kill that infected cell because it can see it. And you do this under the cover of ART so that you stop any new infections. So there are many, many latency-reversing agents that are being tried. The ones that are underlined are the ones that are in clinical trials at the moment. You may have heard of HDAC inhibitors such as varinostat, bryostatin, the TLR agonists, disulfiram, and there's a whole bunch of new pathways which are being explored. The names are not important. What I want you to see is that there's an enormous amount of activity in this field of latency reversal. So where has all this enormous activity led us? What's the current status of LRAs, latency-reversing agents, in clinical trials? So numerous LRAs have been identified in studies with cell lines and primary T cells. And you can see there at the bottom that's an in vitro um, assessment of these LRAs. Their ability to, um, to uh, uh, activate cells with respect to maximal T cell stimulation, which is shown by the red line at the top. So single agents don't do a very good job. If you mix them together, they do a little bit better, but still not a particularly good job. In clinical trials, there's evidence for an increase in cell-associated and plasma HIV RNA if you treat with these latency-reversing agents, but no reduction in the size of the reservoir yet demonstrated. So <coughs> what I'm showing you here is a bunch of trials. Those are the drugs that were used. Um, and what was measured was cell-associated virus RNA, plasma virus load, and cell-associated HIV DNA. If you see the arrow going up, that means that the reservoir increased, not decreased. And what you can see is that all of these studies where they try to flush the virus out of latency, all that has happened is an increase in the size of the reservoir, but not no elimination of latently infected cells. That said, a study of a TLR7 agonist in SIV-infected rhesus macaque monkeys has shown that there may have been a decrease in the amount of HIV integrated in cells. I think the data were misinterpreted, and I'd be happy to discuss that with anyone um, afterwards if you're interested. So what about the kill, right? The LRA is meant to wake the virus up, and then the cell is meant to die, either by the virus or by the immune system killing it. Well, will the virus kill the infected cell? Well, it, it seems not. It seems that after latency reversal, um, that the cells survive despite viral cytopathic effects. Can the immune system help? Well, as you know, the problem is that in an infected person, most of the virus has already mutated to escape the immune response, and escape variants dominate in the latent reservoir of chronically infected subjects, because those are the viruses that have survived, right? Well, what about a therapeutic vaccine? Can you vaccinate the individual to increase the size of the response? Well, yes, you can transiently express HIV-specific T cells, but they don't recognize the HIVs that have already escaped. Well, if we're on the subject of therapeutic vaccines, let's talk about therapeutic vaccines. So there have been 40 clinical tri trials of therapeutic vaccines to increase the size of the HIV-specific response completed to date. Huge number of different um, approaches. 
DNA-based, RNA-based vaccines, viral vectors, peptides, dendritic cells. And all the papers show that the vaccines are safe and immunogenic. Now, who knows what it means when the title of the paper is blah, blah, blah therapy is safe and immunogenic, right? It means it doesn't work. Okay, but it was safe. So two decades of therapeutic vaccine trials have largely failed. Um, despite this, the therapeutic vaccine field remains extremely active. I tend not to think it's a sensible idea to, to do this, unless, of course, some really groundbreaking uh, improvements in this field um, come about. And I hope that they do, because so far the current approaches are not successful. Well, what about if we combine latency reversing agents with therapeutic vaccines or interferon or broadly neutralizing antibodies that I'm going to talk about? Um, well, there's some interesting stuff going on there. So very preliminary stuff. HIV peptide vaccine in a non-randomized, uncontrolled observational study, plus romidepsin, a latency-reversing agent, followed by uh, an analytic therapy interruption. That showed no change in integrated DNA or infectious virus, but it did show a slight significant decline in total HIV DNA within the infected individuals. However, when the people were taken off therapy, that decrease in total HIV DNA was clearly clinically meaningless because, again, the time to rebound was uninfected, always two to four weeks. A study that was discussed um, at Croy this year, a slightly different vaccine, followed by the LRA romidepsin, followed by a therapy interruption. 13 people were um, treated in this manner. Eight individuals, you can see with the graph on the left, recrudesced within four weeks, as you'd expect. And I quote, five individuals had sustained HIV control. Well, it's lower virus loads, but it's not control. Um, and the study wasn't controlled either. And it's still early days, so we'll wait and see. I have to be honest with you, I'm not really holding my breath. I don't want this to be all doom and gloom, all right? I'm saving the best stuff for the end. You've heard about all of that stuff, the vaccines, the shock and kill and everything, because there's a lot going on, and they publish papers, all right? You haven't heard a lot about the stuff that I'm going to talk about now in HIV infection, but I'm, I'm holding out for this stuff. So immunotherapy. You know about immunotherapy. You've read about it. It's Science Magazine, I think, called it the, the breakthrough of the year for cancer um, a couple of years ago. The trouble with chronic diseases, chronic infections like HIV infection, is that the HIV-specific CD8 T cells become exhausted from responding to the virus constantly. What is exhaustion? So if that's the CD8 T cell, it'll express on its surface a marker, a, a checkpoint marker called PD-1. stands for Program Death 1. And if it comes across an HIV-infected cell that it wants to kill, and if that HIV-infected cell expresses the ligand PD-L1, then PD-1 will signal into that CD8 T cell and it'll shut it down and there'll be no response. So what can you do to reinvigorate that T cell so it'll kill its target? You can make an antibody against PD-1 and you can block that interaction and then the reinvigorated cell 
will kill the HIV-infected target cell. The reason you guys know about this is because monoclonal antibodies to PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4 have been remarkably successful in the treatment of cancers such as melanoma, lung, and bladder cancer. An ex vivo blockade of these checkpoints, checkpoint blockade as it's called, has been shown to enhance HIV-specific T-cell responses. And in fact, there are a number of clinical trials underway. There are no results yet, but you can see them on the left there, what molecule is being targeted or are being targeted. <clears throat> All of these trials are underway in HIV-positive people with malignancies because they're potentially dangerous. They can cause autoimmune uh, syndromes. But I think this uh, stands um, a good chance of reinvigorating the immune response um, maybe in combination with a latency-reversing agent. Gene therapy. The aim of gene therapy is to deliver a therapeutic agent to a cell using a gene. Now, why would you do this? What would you do for HIV infection, for a cure for HIV? Well, you could provide something that would inhibit or kill the HIV genome in the cell. Or you could remove something that HIV needs, such as CCR5, the co-receptor. <clears throat> but one of the lessons that we've learned from the Berlin and the Boston patients is that you probably need to remove both the virus, right? That was the chemotherapy, and the target cells. That was the Berlin patient who received cells that were... Oh, did I do that? No. Was it Trump? Trump did that, right? You, you need to remove both the virus from the infected individu individual and the target cells, CCR5, right, to achieve a lasting cure. So I'm going to tell you about something. Some of it's been published, some has not been published, which I think is amazingly promising. Nuclease-based gene therapy targeting CCR5. How does it work? Right, you take an HIV-infected individual and you take out some of his or her CD4 T cells, or stem cells, or a whole bunch of cells from the blood, and you put them in flasks, and you treat them with a zinc finger nuclease. Now, this is an enzyme that goes inside the cell into the nucleus, and it recognizes certain specific DNA sequences. In this case, it recognizes the CCR5 gene, and it's a nuclease enzyme, so it'll cut the CCR5 gene, and it'll kill it. So that cell no longer expresses CCR5, and it becomes uninfectable. You take those, <clears throat> you expand them, you formulate them, and you test them in vitro, and then you infuse them into that individual. Now, most of the work goes on outside the person, all right? So it's minimally invasive immunotherapy with very few, probably no severe adverse events. It's much more accessible than hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And there's no need for compatible donors because it comes from you. So there's also no risk of graft-versus-host disease. Now, a bunch of studies are underway, and these are the, um, the conclusions from these studies. They were done in aviremic HIV-positive people on uh, antiretroviral therapy. And what they showed was that a single infusion of these CCR5-modified CD4 T cells persist long-term in vivo. It's very important. There are durable increases seen in CD4 T cells enriched for this modified CCR5, this knocked-out gene. 
all the participants had a reduction in the size of the HIV reservoir over three years. There you see, that's a log reduction in the size of the reservoir. The kinetics of which suggests replacement of the infected cells over time with the uh, resistant cells. And importantly, a therapy interruption that was performed six weeks after the infusion of these resistant cells showed a reduction in plasma virus load set point that correlates with the amount of these modified cells that were given to these uh, individuals. So putting cells in people that are resistant to HIV infection reduces the size of the reservoir and reduces plasma virus load set point when you stop therapy. This is extremely encouraging. The real question with this is how scalable is it? And I think that's something to be discussed for the future. <clears throat> Finally, therapy with broadly neutralizing antibodies against the HIV envelope. Um, so in terms of the use of HIV-specific antibodies, prevention and treatment with antibodies are very different things. Prevention, um, which we're not talking about here, but I want to mention it so you can see this. Prevention is easier. If you want to prevent acquisition, you might do this in breastfeeding infants, high-risk young adults, discordant couples, or high-risk MSM. And all you need to do there is to block the transmission of a few viruses, all right? It's theoretically easy. Many trials are underway. Treatment of an HIV-infected individual more. Why? Because you have to deal with a much greater diversity of viruses. Where could we use antibodies? We could use them to reduce viremia in acute infection, uh, during treatment interruption, during maintenance therapy, maybe combine them with long-acting antiretrovirals. We could potentially use them to reduce the size of the HIV reservoir because the antibodies block virus entry and they can mediate cell killing and that's where we would use them in a cure. So a lot of antibodies um, have been discovered over the past few years. I'm showing you here their breadth and potency. They're more potent as they go in that direction. They have greater breadth, so they recognize more viruses as they go upwards in that direction. And each one of these dots is an antibody. I'm going to talk to you quite a bit about VRCO1. That's an antibody that targets the CD4 binding site of envelope. Where we really want to get to is an antibody that's where that star is, very, very broad and very, very potent. So we've done a phase one clinical trial of VRCO1, a single infusion in viremic people, and we see three patterns. I'm showing you what happens to the virus loads there. You either get a profound and maintained suppression, that's those curves at the bottom. You get a transient su suppression, or you get no suppression at all. Whether or not you get suppression of plasma virus load is determined by the sensitivity of the viruses floating around in that individual to VRCO1, to the antibody. If that individual has pre-existing viruses that are resistant to the antibody, then those viruses are selected for and the antibody doesn't do much good. It's just like drug-resistant uh, drug viruses in somebody you treat with a drug. Recently, we've had phase one trials of VRCO1 in individuals who were on antiretrovirals and then therapy was stopped. And what you see here, the graph on the left and the graph in the middle, I'm showing you here recrudescence of virus. The majority rebounded by week five after therapy interruption, even with high plasma antibody levels, and they rebounded because of resistant viruses. However, if you look at the curves on 
the right, there is a modestly delayed but significantly delayed virus rebound compared to historical controls. This is really important. We're delaying rebounds significantly. And similar findings were also found with another an antibody, 3BNC117. That's monotherapy, right? We're getting resistant viruses. And you guys know that monotherapy is not a good idea because you get resistant viruses. All right, so what's the profile of a second-generation monoclonal antibody product? We need tenfold more potent antibodies. We need to cover 100%, really, of virus diversity to prevent escape. We'd like to give the antibody by subcutaneous injection um, every four to six months rather than by IV infusion every two months. And the cost has to be comparable to ARVs. We can engineer greater potency and breadth. So more potent antibodies going down that way and the breadth of neutralization you can see over here. So we've got a bunch of antibodies that are broad and potent. We have a bunch of antibodies that are less broad but about 500 times more potent. Now if we take this antibody here 10E8, it's incredibly broad. It recognizes almost all viruses, but it's not very potent. We can mutate it with just a few amino acid mutations, and we get an antibody that is just as broad and a thousand times more potent. And we can do this in the lab. We can even take different antibodies and mix them together. We can even put them together onto one antibody. And this graph shows you the antibodies on their own in the dotted lines, and then the antibody combinations. You can see they become more potent and greater breadth. So engineering or combining monoclonal antibodies improves both potency and breadth. And now I've saved the real best to last. We can we can take the FC portion of the antibody, right, the tail that binds FC, and we can make mutations to increase the half-life of these broadly neutralizing antibodies. So we did this for VRCO1. We mutated two antibodies in FC. We added a leucine and a serine, which increases its affinity for what's called a neonatal FC receptor. What that does is it protects the monoclonal antibody from being degraded inside cells. Now, and we injected it into individuals six months ago. So if you inject VRCO1, the unmodified antibody, after about a month, the levels in the plasma go below a therapeutic level. VRCO1 LS, with the LS mutation, we're up here now, six months after in injection, and it still maintains a level above 50 micrograms per mil. We don't actually know the half-life because the levels haven't decreased enough. What this means is that the half-life is at least four times more in healthy adults. It means that the amount that we have to give people of this neutralizing antibody against HIV is five to ten times less. And it means that we may extend the interval of dosing to twice a year. All right, now isn't that a good thought? So I want to leave you with, with that, and I want to remind you that if we can use this for a cure, we might think about using these things as um, therapeutics um, as well for maintenance therapy twice a year. So let's conclude and summarize. We have a greater understanding now of the size, the shape, the location, and the mechanisms for maintenance of the HIV reservoir. We can reduce reservoir size with very early ART, but it is not clinically significant. Latency reversing agents show poor reactivation and no reduction in reservoir size so far. Therapeutic vaccines show some effects in monkeys, but in humans, really it's debatable. 
Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation works once, but it is not scalable. Gene therapy may be used to target HIV and or CCR5, and clinical studies show some reservoir reduction. But again, how scalable is it with our current technologies? Future technologies may make a difference. Envelope-specific monoclonal antibodies are in promising proof-of-concept studies with more potent monoclonals, combinations of monoclonals, by specific monoclonals being developed. And what I want you to, to go home with is the concept <coughs> that combinations of approaches may have to be used. Long-acting ARVs with monoclonals that act long. Latency-reversing agents with monoclonals. Gene therapy with monoclonals, latency-reversing agents, and so on. You should let your imaginations run wild. Thank you very much. questions. So while we're gathering, I'm going to ask one question first. For the clinicians, there's been, you know, for the last four or five years, there's been quite a push in the Bay Area when a patient presents with what looks like acute antiretroviral therapy to get them on therapy immediately. I mean, literally, you know, within hours of presentation, <coughs> with the idea being that we reduce the reservoir size. And so you've nicely summarized the impact of that. But I'm wondering in terms of trying to convince, you know, patients that this, uh, this approach if the studies that are ongoing screen people for time of onset of therapy to sort of give a sense about their reservoir and whether that should, can be used in the office or clinic to try to convince people to start early with the idea that there will be a, an approach yes. down the line. Yes, I think the way you have to put it to them now is that, is that starting therapy very early now and then stopping therapy doesn't lead to a clini clinically significant benefit. But it does lead to an extremely significant reduction in the size of the reservoir. And there is no argument among any of us in the field that reducing the size of the reservoir is a sine qua non to future cure approaches. So I would tell them, start on therapy as soon as possible. Get your reservoir as soon as possible, and then hang on for uh, a cure approach to come around the corner. Okay. Uh, first question, the second question is, is there any... Um role for macrophages. I mean, you, you looked at, you know, CD8 cells and all that. Are there other cell lines that might be useful other than antibodies and, and CD8? I, um, macrophages may be very important in antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So if you treat with a monoclonal antibody um, and that binds to an infected cell, the macrophage can recognize it, bind FC, and it can kill that infected cell. Um, are macrophages a reservoir for the virus? I would say no. So there is a therapeutic role for macrophages, but not role as a reservoir. Other people disagree with me. They are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a couple questions about um, CRISPR technology. Yes. Um, and zinc fingers. Yes. Will this make scaling up um, yes. More easy, and, and how so? So the problem with uh, zinc finger nucleases uh, and talons and other such things is off-target effects. So they bind other bits of the, of the genome and cut it up. Uh, CRISPR is much more specific. However, it's the same problem that affects both zinc finger nucleases and CRISPR and its delivery. So the biggest hurdle that we have at the moment is, um, is a delivery mechanism. How do you get those things inside the cell? Um, there are nanoparticles, there are lipids, there are all kinds of things that people are working on. We don't have a breakthrough yet, but that's the key hurdle that we have to overcome. Again, back again to the office situation where someone presents after that sort of four-week early interval in terms of stage of, of early HIV infection. 
is there any rationale for, again, sort of jumping into therapy? Or at that point, after four weeks, is it okay to wait for genotype results back and take a more measured approach to initiation of therapy? In terms of the reservoir, it will make no difference. We know that. However, in terms of the overall long-term health of the, of the individual, I think it will make a difference because the sooner you start therapy, the sooner immune activation, which is the root of all evil after the virus, obviously, you can control immune activation and then off-target clinical effects such as heart disease and all of that, you reduce that. So I think it's important to start therapy as early as possible. But I think, the, the and I think that's important. And the question has to do with, again, I mean, it takes a genotype maybe two weeks to get back. At that point, in terms of activation... So I, I, think, I think two weeks um, is fine. You okay, can wait two weeks. still considering yes. starting therapy early. Yes. Um, but after that... But we know by four weeks you're not going to make a dent on the size of the reservoir. Okay. Um, and there were some questions about the increase in the size of the uh, reservoir with latency reversal. Um, what, did that occur while they were still on combination antiretroviral therapy? Yes. Or, so it did? Yes, because what you do is, um, you know, LRAs, they stimulate T cells. They activate them, and T cells proliferate. And if that proliferating T cell has an HIV genome in it, you get more HIV-infected T cells. So the last slide where you talked about modifications to the antibodies to increase half-life. I'm sorry, were you measuring intercellular antibody levels or plasma? Plasma antibody and so levels. The plasma, I mean, obviously the activity occurs, where do, where's, where's it working? Inside the cell? No, no, on the before, outside of the cell. It it's working on the outside of the cell. Okay, okay, so, so those are important. Really important, and, and you know, every week when we ask, you know, what are the levels now? They're the same. Yeah. We are, we're, uh, we're like OMG, that's yeah. what we're like. Yeah, and we, we know that for, the, for those individuals who are born CCR5, either homozygous or heterozygous, there are some other risks uh, in terms of other infections, other diseases. Yeah, um, can you West Nile. That? Yeah, West Nile. West Nile is probably, well, it's the only one so far that we're absolutely sure okay. about. If you don't have CCR5, then West Nile can kill you. Yeah. If you do have CCR5, then you don't know you have it. Okay. That's so the only one. However, we have a really good West Nile vaccine at the VRC, so you know, <laughs> okay. we could just vaccinate everyone. So that may be part of your combination I think approach. so. I think yeah. so. Uh, that's a good thing for, to understand. So uh, but can, would you expect any other consequences of some of these long-life monoclonals? In, I mean, predicament in terms of other diseases or anything? Is it... Is it just targeted HIV specifically, and therefore, never mind? They're, they're, so when we look at some of them, um, particularly the ones that bind HIV near the membrane domain, they display some um, autoreactivity to lipids. And if they display a, a, a relatively high amount of autoreactivity, we don't use them. So we screen for the we ones that, for that are potentially not dangerous. Okay. Yeah, we screen okay. them. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I just, I'm, what else do you screen? I mean, what are, so that's the one thing. That's, that that's what we screen for. Okay. I, yeah. I think those, those issues are important as people yeah. uh, begin to think about you know, these. But I, th I think they're remarkably safe. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, so I've been through all the questions. Are there any other questions for Dr. Doak? I think this has really been a fascinating um, talk for me. Um, uh, and and I really appreciate the, the information. Any other questions? Good. Come up. Yes. Um, how do you know whether there's a single virus that caused the reproduction in the blood? So the viruses. Make sure yeah. everyone heard the question. The question is that patient two in Boston, the, 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 it looked like it was a single virus 
that, that was viable and reactivated and was now the cause of uh, the rebound. And the question was, how do, how do you know that? So what you can do is you can sequence all the viruses, as many of the viruses you can sequence in patient B before um, hand, so you know all the viruses floating around genetically. And then when the virus recrudesces, uh, you can sequence all those viruses that recrudesce. And then you do a phylogenetic tree, which has a time axis, and you look at the relationships, genetic relationships between all those viruses, and the tree does this, and it comes out from one branch from a single virus that in existed in the individual before. And that's how we know it's through genetic analysis. Good. Thank all you right. very much. Thank you. Good. Good